Welcome to Medicare for All Explained. This podcast will enlighten our listeners and dispel the distortions that surround Medicare for All. Medicare for All Explained is produced in collaboration with Physicians for a National Health Program and is hosted and produced by Joe Sparks. I'm your host, Joe Sparks. This is episode 55. Racism is a public health threat. My guest, Ronald Wyatt, MD, is a board-certified internist and practiced medicine for over 20 years in St. Louis, Missouri and Huntsville, Alabama. He was the first black chief resident at the St. Louis University School of Medicine. Dr. Wyatt co-chairs the Institute for Health Care Improvement Equity Advisory Group and is faculty for the Institute for Health Care Improvement Pursuing Equity Initiative. Dr. Ronald Wyatt, welcome to Medicare for All Explained. Uh, thank you very much. It's just a delight and pleasure to be on the show. So thank you so much for having me. So before we get into a discussion about why racism is a threat to public health, I'd like to ask a basic question, and that is, what is public health? Sure. So if we break that down, we have two words, right? Public and health. Uh, so when we talk about the public, then we, we're talking about the population, the a population of, of interest. Uh, so uh, in any nation, country, even the U.S., we're really talking about the people that live in communities and neighborhoods and, and, and regions. So then the health uh, is a really critical part of that, because here we're not just talking about health care, uh, like the care you receive when you go to a clinic or hospital. We're really talking about air safety. We're talking about the safety of the food that we eat. We're talking about the cleanliness of the environment, which includes air, water, food. Uh, then a big part of public health then is what are we doing to identify uh, and to prevent disease. Uh, so a big part of public health then is getting vaccinations and, and getting dental exams and eye exams and but then all those other um, screenings that are necessary for the health and well-being of the public. Um, so again, different from health care. And really, we, we think of those things as sort of those we refer to as upstream determinants, those upstream things uh, that we would hope would prevent any of the kind of downstream uh, poor uh, results of when we have a lack of public health. And I assume by minimizing the upstream effects, you minimize the chances that people need other health care and they can live healthier lives. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. So, so that is the intent. Uh, but what is implied in that statement uh, is that those things upstream are available and that they are, they are equally uh, distributed or allocated across the public. Um, so that if anyone wants to prevent an illness or a disease uh, or a condition, then there are no barriers to that person wanting to achieve some higher degree of health, and that nothing, uh, no constraint, no barrier should be in the way of a person who wants to be as healthy as they can be. 
And recently, the Centers for Disease Control, the CDC, recently declared racism a serious public health threat. And a few days before the CDC statement, you said in a Washington Post editorial that racism in the United States is a public health crisis. Why is that? So uh, I think if we go back and think about the definition of shared then, uh, when we begin to introduce uh, racism into the conversation, it's important that we understand what um, we are talking about there. Uh, so that means, uh, as I alluded to, um, there should not be an unfair or unequal distribution of the necessary preventive approaches that are needed for a population, for a public to stay healthy. That health and health care should not disadvantage the public based on nothing more than skin color. It should not advantage another population or community based on nothing other than the color of the skin, which um, we uh, call as a social description race. And one of the things that you made a point of in the editorial is that often academics did not want to use the term racism. Why do you think that is? And why do you think it is important to use that term? Sure. Um, you know, it's, um, it's important to, to make that distinction um, because usually when I talk about, present on, or discuss racism, uh, the reaction becomes visceral. Uh, it becomes, are you calling me a racist? And that's not what I'm saying. So there is a type of racism uh, that is is what we call interpersonal. So that means that I believe that I am innately superior to you because of my skin color. That's interpersonal racism. So what we talk about in this context is is those institutional and structural barriers, constraints uh, that are based on race, and, and it becomes a difficult conversation to define what we mean by that without a person feeling that they're the one being labeled a racist. So as a part of this discussion, we're trying to elevate it beyond uh, the idea that somehow we're singling out a person or an institution as as a racist person or a a racist institution. What we're referring to is what are the, the guys, the policies, the practices, the values of an organization or a group that then leads to what we talk about as disparate or different outcomes for people that that is based on nothing more than race. And in the U.S. here, we talk about primarily uh, black and brown people, um, the uh, indigenous populations, American Indians, Asians, Pacific Islanders, et cetera. So we have to make that distinction, and that begins to make people feel uncomfortable. Quite frankly, some people don't want to talk about it because it could impact their revenues. And I've, I've met with leaders and organizations who fear uh, that if they began to talk about racism that they know exists, they will lose business or lose business partners or lose business relationships. So that is why I put in the Washington Post op-ed that the previous editor of JAMA did not want to use the word because they would lose readers. If they lose readers, 
They lose advertising money. They lose advertising money. They have to restrict their distribution. So that's a business case for a lot of leaders and organizational leaders. When we began to talk about systemic, institutional, and structural racism. And what public health problems are caused by racism? You mentioned some already, but could you just repeat what you think the worst public health problems are that are caused by racism? Sure. If we get into um, uh, more into the diseases, uh, then there are just mountains of scientific evidence, well done studies that began to describe these different outcomes, uh, different outcomes that have been almost um, treated in an indifferent way. So the one that we talk a lot about these days is just the maternal outcome for black and brown women. The death rate of black and brown women during uh, and after uh, pregnancy and delivery, uh, that in the U.S. at least is two to three times that of white women. And in fact, when you look at the data, the data that's available through peer research, uh, what is found uh, is that a black woman with a college degree is more likely to die in childbirth than a white woman who has a high school diploma. Uh, that's been evidenced by what happened uh, with Serena Williams during her pregnancy and just a long list of uh, women who have died because of differences in childbirth. And when you look underneath that then, what you find are policies and procedures that work in the disfavor of black women. And one of the big ones is access to quality care. When you look inside where care is distributed, you will see an unequal distribution of services uh, for black and brown women during pregnancy. If you look, uh, for instance, at uh, outcomes from diabetes or heart failure or cancer screening, and in fact, we know that for cancer screening, Black women are almost as equally likely to get mammograms as white women, but then the death rate from breast cancer in black women just soars. So when we look at, well, why is that? There are structures in place that make it more difficult for black women to get follow-up care, to follow quality care in a timely manner. Now, if we go inside of that, something else operates, and that is what operates in the clinical setting and in the exam room. It's how a black woman is spoken to. It's how a black woman is treated. It's the disrespect that's shown. And, and what I talk about in the article is how, in many cases, uh, black women are, uh, leave a, a clinical setting feeling belittled uh, at how she was spoken to. So these things began to play in uh, to these poor outcomes that we see. So I talked with another young man in Chicago who um, said that he didn't even have a physician. He had an accountant. Because when he goes in, the person doesn't look at him. He spends his time uh, mostly putting information into the health record. So that destroys trust. And when we believe that all of these components, trust, compassion, respect, empathy, are expressions of a system that's built off of what we call structural institutional racism, what we call these microaggressions that people feel. And then we tend to label people as being non-compliant and non-adherent when it's a system that's been built, constructed, and sustained to make a difference in how a black or brown person is treated in a clinical setting uh, versus a white person. So again, you go back to the data, and it's apparent. 
when you look at the disease outcomes, death rates, particularly during COVID, when you see that black and brown people have died at two, three times the rate as white people during COVID. When you look inside, getting back to public health, when you look inside of the data, what you see is even the healthcare workers who died in COVID are more likely to be brown or black because they work in what's called essential occupations. When, when we look at uh, other populations that have died during COVID, there is a vast difference uh, in the treatment uh, and outcomes of black and brown people. But what we know is that the, what I call the canary in the coal mine already existed. We, we had the data before COVID. We knew that there were certain hospitals and clinics in under-resourced, marginalized communities that had been overlooked before COVID. The, the data shows that. Uh, so, so there's no surprise now that when COVID hits, that these communities uh, that are low income, where people have to live in multi-generational homes, rely on public transportation, work in essential occupations, are impacted more heavily. So those are what I call the known knowns. So leadership knew those things were there, and they were sustained. So that is what I label there was the structural and institutional racism that's already been designed and created into these systems. So now COVID has, has literally, quite literally, uh, pulled the scab off the scar that already existed. Now, you mentioned that COVID has emphasized or highlighted known knowns. Is there anything that COVID has made apparent that hasn't been known? In, in terms of... In terms of racism, has anything else been made apparent? Yeah, yeah, I'm not sure. You know, I will honestly say, and colleagues of mine, when we talk about this, we're not surprised by any of it. And you can go from top to bottom on this. So let's go to the top and, and ask ourselves, how many boards of directors at major nonprofit and profit healthcare systems have enough women and people of color? Very few. So that's at the board level. That's at the governance level. Now, let's go to executive leadership in the same organizations. And what do you see? There is lack of diversity at the executive level. These are the people that are making the decisions. They're deciding where the resources are allocated. They know where the resources are allocated. Now, you take that down uh, you know, to the next level where clinical care is being provided, and you begin to see a reflection of what has happened at the top of an organization. And that is why we call it uh, um, structural and institutional. Um, so then if, if we if we just stay right there for a second, then there are organizations that knew pre-COVID that they had hospitals in their systems in certain zip codes that they already knew were under-resourced. So I would ask the question, so what surprises you that when a pandemic hits the same communities that you have limited resources to pre-COVID are the ones that's most impacted? What surprises you? that you have people living in these communities that work in your organization for 750 and 850 an hour who have to ride public transportation, who live in crowded communities where the, the public health back to that topic uh, is already poor. But it should surprise you that these are the communities that are going to be most impacted. What is going to surprise you uh, when you look at residential long-term care facilities and people that work there, and that's another mortality rate that I think we need to dig into, is the number of people of color who have died because they work in long-term care facilities. What surprises you when you look at long-term care facilities 
and you see the gamut of for-profit taking private long-term facilities that exist in this country who under-resource those long-term care facilities and, and take the profits off the top, what should surprise you when the death rates in those under-resourced long-term care facilities soared uh, uh, during COVID? So for me, uh, th- there is no surprise. Uh, you know, people seem to be surprised that somehow there is what's called vaccine hesitancy in black and brown communities. Why should that be a surprise? If there's a community that has been overlooked, disrespected, not shown empathy or respect or compassion for literally hundreds of years, why should you be surprised that that community doesn't trust you now when you come saying, roll up your arm uh, and take this shot? What's going to make me trust you at that point? What's going to make me trust you where I am here in Alabama when people know what happened in Tuskegee or in Baltimore where they know about Henrietta Lacks or across the country where they know that people have been treated differently for generations? So that that comes as no surprise to me as it relates to black and brown uh, communities during, during COVID. If anything surprises me about COVID is that now people are beginning to, to understand, to reach out, to talk about structural institution racism, systemic racism, and how it's impacted this country for basically 402 years. So none of this surprises me. We have laid down a history of this mistreatment for 402 years. Uh, so as we move forward, then I will be surprised uh, if we stay with it. And what I mean by that is, is this is not just a, a moment. And what, what will surprise me is if after this time passes, health and healthcare systems don't drift back into the way they were pre-COVID. I hope you'd be surprised that that doesn't happen. I hope so too. I must admit, when I started this podcast about now, about two and a half years ago, I did not realize how much racism was in healthcare. And while I learn new things, I'm not surprised when I hear about it. I'd like to ask a question. So how do we solve the problems of racism in public health and healthcare? Sure. I'm going to start with maybe three things I've already touched on and move forward from there. One is people in healthcare leadership and, and from payers to suppliers across the board need to stop the ahistorical approach. People need to begin to understand this history. That's why I said four and two years. People need to understand the, the, the history, not revise it and not rewrite it. They need to understand how unequal and inequitable healthcare has impacted black and brown populations for generations. That's the one thing. The, the next thing is to begin to discuss how the same populations have been devalued uh, for a longer period of time. How do we begin now to bring value back to communities and, and people based on nothing than the color of their skin, uh, value to them? How do we express that? What happens there? That's the action step. What does it do? It builds trust. And we can't move forward with any of this until we build trust back in communities that have been and overlooked and mistreated in an unequal way for all the spare time. So we have to build back in value to say to people, we value one part of a, a action. This is apologize. To say we're sorry that, that this has existed and, and we've known that it existed and we allowed it to exist 
and we then ask questions. That's the leadership stance on this. So say we're sorry. I'm all for having some truth and reconciliation boards like they even did in South Africa, because in this country, as the writer wrote in a book, there has been a medical apartheid system that, that has existed in the U.S. from, from, from 1619 and before. So that means apologize. Look at how we can, we can reconcile this and build in a different kind of system that brings value to everyone. That means everyone deserves to have health care insurance coverage. Coverage beyond prevention, uh, but it includes treatment. It includes dental care, eye care. Uh, every part of care that, that people need should be available to everyone. So you need to commit to that. You know, when I look at just the, the salaries of corporate executives in healthcare and the commercial payments, it is it should be embarrassing to them. Uh, you know, even one health organization in New York City, their executives came back to town and shamed after they left town during COVID and it was exposed how much money they were making. When they had people working for almost nothing in those hospitals, putting their lives on the line, and they escape uh, to their mansions. I'm not you know, against anyone who's, who's got money in a mansion, all of that. But this is health and health care. So, so begin to adjust those things. Then next, begin to put resources where they are most needed, not where they are most wanted. So what do I mean by that then? Every not-for-profit healthcare system in this country uh, has what's called um, community hours. Uh, that internal revenue service code, you have to put money back in the community as a part of your not-for-profit status. We need to look at where that money is being spent, how it's being spent, and what communities is it being spent in. And I will guarantee you what you'll find is that it's, it's still distributed in an unequal way. It's distributed to the communities and the zip codes where it's not as much needed. It's where it's wanted. And that's political influence, economic influence, legal influence in those communities. So we began to look at where the community needs money for not-for-profit health systems going. It's going to tell another story. It's going to say, no wonder. No wonder these populations that have suffered didn't have access don't have a clinic nearby that they can get to uh, in an evening or on a weekend because they work in essential, what's now called essential occupations. So we need to look at those are just three things. And and then if we get into how do we become anti-racist, that becomes a whole different organizational discussion. Uh, so that means that an organization needs to put in a strategic plan. We will be an anti-racist healthcare organization as a as a governance board, as a leadership. It's going to be written into our strategic plan. We're going to do some type of, of assessment on where we are. We're going to call it out what it is, and we're going to make it part of our strategy uh, to work on how we dismantle racism in the organization. That's a simple question. How is racism operating here? And, and how is it reflected in our policies and guidelines? Who's writing those policies? Uh, what are our values? Uh, are we continuing to hire people because they fit our culture or not. And, and often, often organizations will hire people because they fit their culture. Well, if you have a clinical executive leadership group that's all white men, guess what? They're going to see that as the best fit. we got to break through that. And I hesitate to use the term diversity because, as I mentioned in the article in the Washington Post, it's easy to become diverse. It's more challenging to become inclusive. It's even more of a challenge 
for organizations to make it so that no matter who you are, black or brown or disabled, uh, rich or poor, that you feel like you belong in that organization. So putting in place techniques to de-bias in the organization. I advocate uh, that every organization that receives federal money apply an implicit association test on racial bias for their leadership at a minimum. Uh, and you begin to understand the, the racial biases that exist, then go and get de-biased training. Go and get training on how to break down the, the structural, and I'm going to call structural racial incompetencies. And that goes beyond a cultural competency learning module that's a check-the-box exercise. And it's to me is that you've just become a more culturally competent racist. Uh, so that does no good for me. Uh, so we have to do something that's stronger than, than a drop-down learning module for these efforts. It takes more than the board and the board foundation saying we're going to send $30,000 to the clinic and the under-resourced community um, and check the box. You have to go beyond that. You have to sustain this and measure it. So I advocate for setting up a measurable health equity index that you're looking at your data, that you're now taking that data apart by race and by ethnicity and by language, by sexual orientation and gender identity, and you use that data to drive your change, to, to decide as an organization where we need to truly invest the, the resources where they are truly the most needed uh, in, in a public, in a population, in a community. I think those are great points, and I would love to see that happen. Before we end, is there anything that you would like to add? Yeah, I think we're at this inflection point. And um, as I said before, I hope that we continue to move forward. But I would say that hope is not a plan. I hope that we begin to time frame this. But time has to be specific. It can't be soon because soon is not a number. So we need to time frame it. The next part that I'm, I'm to now in a way more passionate than I've ever been is that we're going to have to start to regulate this. And that's why I'm so pleased that the CDC came out with their statement. As you said, a couple of days after my, my op-ed ran, I had nothing to do with their statement. But when, when the government comes out and says something, my hope is that there is something behind that and now begins to hold health and health systems accountable. Uh, and if that has to be increased regulation, then so be it. Uh, I would like to see every hospital that is accredited through the CMS, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services approach, that these hospitals and healthcare systems, uh, if they want to be accredited and get paid through CMS, then they need to look at how is racism operating here? Are you looking at your data by race, ethnicity, and language, by sexual orientation, gender identity? How are you using your community needs money? Uh, and, and give us a detailed assessment of that. Uh, show us your disease and healthcare outcome data, which also includes how you treat people, what we call patient experience. And then, again, to put in place payment mechanisms, payment models that's going to either reward or not those, those systems, those organizations that are not meeting these, these benchmarks and standards. So we need to, at this point, see regulation. We need to see accreditation. We need to see health and healthcare systems, especially in the not-for-profit world, uh, being held accountable for this. 
And I think, as um, most of us know, it is far past time that there is no excuse for every person in this country to have some kind of health care insurance coverage. It's a worldwide embarrassment when you look at the $3 trillion a year that's spent on health care in this country and then look at the outcomes of how we rank around the world, which is in the 30-something, which puts us on status with many developing countries, is what I would call them. So this is the point I'm at. If we're not going to do it voluntarily, then it's going to have to, at least partly, be done through regulatory apparatuses and accreditation approaches. I certainly agree with that. Dr. Wyatt, thank you so much for being on Medicare for All Explained. Thank you so much. I really appreciated it. You have been listening to Medicare for All Explained. Remember to tell your family, friends, and colleagues about this podcast. Information about Medicare for All Explained can be found at our website, medicareforallexplained.org. The music for this show is Super Bubbly by Jesse Spillane. The logo was created by Lily Sparks. Thank you for listening.